0: and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, welcome to week 19 of a 38-week series that has us walking through the book of Romans. So we are now at the halfway point of this series, and as we've said before, if the the Bible itself were a mountain range, then Romans 8 would definitely be its highest peak. And over the last four weeks, we have come to see why that declaration is true. We've seen the beauty of Romans 8 and all that Paul kind of fleshes out for us. And as we near the close of this masterpiece, which is Romans 8, Paul brings the depths of the gospel uh, explored in this chapter into a climatic exaltation. So in the final nine verses of Romans 8, Paul hurls seven questions at his Roman audience defiantly and triumphantly challenging any creature in heaven, any creature on earth, even any creature in hell to answer these questions or to defy the truths that they are um, declaring. And the fact that this chapter begins, as we've said each week, with no condemnation and it ends with no separation is proof that Paul wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know what we have in Christ. And here's the deal. Paul wants to give us the assurance that we need to face the difficulties that we're called on to endure. And what I know is each and every week, many of us or all of us are asked to walk through things that we would never choose for ourselves. So if we got to pick our lives from Monday to Sunday, we would probably choose things differently. We would probably leave all the bad things out and multiply the good things as great as we could get them. But unfortunately, we, that's not the life we live. Our life is oftentimes like living in a disheveled house. It's beginning to fall in upon its own foundation. The house that we live in, the, the doors don't function like they used to. They stick. The plumbing occasionally works. You never know what's going to happen when you plug in an appliance, and it seems like the house is always leaking even if it's not raining. So this is the picture of what the world that we live in looks like things aren't the way they're supposed to be the, the house doesn't function the way it was meant to function and, and yes our lives are hard yes our lives are messy but please hear this your hard moments and your messy moments are not they're, they're not a picture that God's plan has failed they're actually part of God's plan when things go bad in our lives it doesn't mean that God has failed us it means that God is taking us through something for our good. God's working to complete something in us and through us, but we've got to trust him in the midst of the work. During the building of the Golden Gate Bridge over the San Francisco Bay, construction fell badly behind because 23 men fell from the scaffolding to their deaths. Engineers and administrators could find no solution to the cost of delays, and finally someone suggested a gigantic net be hung under the bridge to catch any who fell. Finally, in spite of the enormous cost, the engineers opted for the net, and after it was installed, progress was hardly interrupted. Ten workers fell into the net, but they were all safe. So ultimately, all of the that was lost to, to fear, all that was lost to the, the fear of the unknown was reported. Regained by replacing fear with faith in a net. And because men were now secured of security, they were free to wholeheartedly serve their purpose. And let me just say this. The Apostle Paul indicates in Romans 8 that many Christians live out their spiritual journey in similar fashion. Meaning, when we don't know and we don't trust the power that's underneath us. And the promises that we have underneath us that are holding us up. We are... Tempted to just hang on to keep from falling. And that can quickly lead to lives where we take no risk, we don't do much work, and we obviously don't trust what we say we do. Just imagine today if I had a balance beam here and I asked Ashlyn Ely, amazing gymnast, to come and do her little flips and do all the things that she does on the balance beam. And she uh, jumps off and does like that, and everybody goes, Yeah! And then imagine I say, Well, I'm going to go next. And I scoot on the balance beam, and I just hold on. And we play music for 30, 45 seconds. I'm just holding on. And at the end of the music, music stops, and I jump off, climb off the bar, and I go, ta-da! I mean, imagine you guys would be like, what in the world was that? But let me just tell you, many of us, it's exactly how we live our lives. And somehow we think we're going to stand before God and go, ta-da! And God's going to say, you didn't do anything. Like, you didn't do anything. All you did was protect your own safety and didn't do anything. Like, what what do you think I'm supposed to do with that? And the picture is, if we're not careful, that's how we live our lives, refusing to ever let go of the things that God has called us to let go of because we trust Him more. So when we understand and apply the truths that Paul is placing before us, we will walk, we will work, we will live securely in them. So... Therefore, let's, let's dive in and let's dig into these nine verses, the last nine verses of Romans 8. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Romans 8, 31 through 39 together. And let me tell you, I am so excited about this message and what I believe God is going to do in and through it. So verse 31, when, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these amazing verses, God, and what we believe you're going to do in and through them. Speak, God. Speak, Lord. Lord, what we don't know, Father, show us. What we don't have, God, give to us. And what we are not, Lord, make us. In this moment, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, sure, it's easy, if we're not careful, in our heads just to consent and go, yeah, God's for us, sure. And that's, that's kind of a great hope, and that, that sounds really good. But sometimes it can be hard to believe when we live in the midst of exhaustion. We live in the midst of busyness. We live in a world of physical and spiritual opposition and oppression. And as children of God, we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to think that the, the hard things that we're going through are somehow a failure of God's character, of God's promises, of God's power, or God's plan. You know, we, we must not let ourselves begin to believe that God is not as trustworthy as we once thought he was. For when we do that, get, get this, if we begin to question God's trustworthiness, we won't go to him for help. You don't go to people who you don't trust their character for help. If you don't trust their character, guess what? You don't tell them anything. You don't do anything with them. You're like, I'm not telling them a thing. I don't trust them at all. And if we're not careful, we we begin to doubt God. We begin to, to distrust Him. And when we distrust Him, we don't go to Him. We don't bring Him our cares and concerns. We don't declare in the midst of our difficulties. God is for us. And if He's for us, who can be against us? We've got to be very, very careful. For you see, God has chosen... To let us live in this fallen world because he plans to employ the difficulties of this fallen world to make us what he wants us to be. That means, hear this, the moments of difficulty, the moments of pain in our lives are not an interruption of God's plan. They're not a failure of God's plan. They're part of God's plan. They're part of God's plan for you. Now we can say, well, I don't don't want them. Then you don't want what God has for you. You don't want that So I want to lay before us today four truths related to or really defining the God who is for us. So four truths that define the God that is for us. And truth number one is this. God is our sovereign protector. God is our sovereign protector. Look at verse 31 again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what Paul is saying is this. Don't miss it. God is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. God is not neutral concerning you. God's not waiting to see how your life's going to turn out, and then God's going to say, yeah, I'm for him, or no, I'm not for him. No, God is for you. I found an article this week. It was a few years back from the New York Times entitled Googling God. And it was an article that expressed the kind of the recent trends of the Google search data when it comes to God. And they kind of listed the top three questions that were asked concerning God. And here are the three, and I'll give them in reverse order. The the third question asked about God was, who created God? So that's a deep question. Um, Number two was, why does God allow evil to exist? We've all wondered that. In the midst of our pain, God, why evil? Why do you allow evil? But get this, the number one question asked on Google was this, why does God hate me? Why does God hate me? People actually type that in. Obviously, they. the research shows that there's a significant amount of people who view God as being against them. View God as being judgmental or impulsive or a tyrant. Why does God hate me? But Paul comes in the scene here, and the declaration here is this. If God is willing to look at us in our sin because of our faith in Jesus and say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then God is for us. If he's willing to look at our lives and say that we're justified, we're declared forgiven and not guilty, God is for us. If God is able to take us as children of wrath and make us sons and daughters of the most high God, then he is for us. Don't miss that. God is for us. It looks like you don't believe it today, but he is. He is. And what does that mean? To continue this this mental picture, if, if this was a sports team, it would mean that God's on your team. If this was a courtroom, it means God is your lawyer. If this is a debate, God's speaking for your team, meaning you're going to win. And many times when we think of this verse, if God's for me, who can be against me? What we think of it in this way. Well, I grab a hold of God, I bring God to me, God okays all my plans, I give him my blueprint, he stamps it, and life is good. Unfortunately, that's not what this means at all. In fact, think about this. When we get to Romans 8, we realize that we didn't grab God at all, he grabs us. And in grabbing us, God holds us, and he keeps us by his side every single day of our lives. Let me frame it in a different way. If God, if the God who created the heavens and the earth, who flung out the Milky Way galaxy and all the other galaxies, if that God is for you, then who cares who's against you? Who cares who's against you? Think about the difference that makes. Knowing that God was for him, David wrote in Psalm 3, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. To write that, either you're an absolute nutcase or you believe in a power greater than yourself. That's exactly what David's saying. I believe in God, so therefore, if thousands of people come against me, God, I'm going to trust in you. But Let let me be very clear here. Paul isn't saying that no one or nothing will ever oppose you. Many things will oppose us. But what Paul is saying is that nothing that opposes us will stop God's good purpose for us nothing that opposes you will stop God's good purpose for you. God is for you. He is for you. I, there's a pastor in the last century that I love whose name was G Campbell Morgan. he was an expositor of the word his life was an extraordinary life and one of the favorite my favorite stories about him was told by his daughter in a, in a biography about him when he was just graduating from seminary and he wanted to pastor a church so he applied to pastor a church and in that setting, you had to pass an examination of doctrine, and then you had to pass a oral preaching um, evaluation. So he passed a theological test, no problems at all, but the day came for his oral evaluation. He stood in a church that normally sits a 1,000. There were 75 there, and there were three that were judging him, and he froze. I mean, he bombed it, and they failed him. So he was not able in that moment to pursue pastoring. And his father, had, who had been praying for him and had wanted to know how he did, said, "Listen, son. Whenever you find out, wire a message to me." So G Campbell Morgan wired his dad a one-word response, and it was or one-word answer to the test. He said, "Rejected. Rejected." And his dad wrote back this response: "Rejected by the world, accepted in heaven." rejected by the world, accepted in heaven. Brothers and sisters, we are accepted by God. I think of the declaration of Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, therefore I will not fear. Don't fear, God is for you. He is for you. Now that that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean that everything you do, even the sin you pursue, God's going, you do it. You go. No, what it means is this. God wants for you what you would want for yourself if you had sense enough to want it. That's what it means. That's exactly what God is for you. God has plans for you that exceed your plans for yourself. Our God is our sovereign protector. But secondly, our God or God is our supreme provider. God is our supreme provider. God does not limit His love for us, in fact, God unlimits his love for us. You know, we're the ones who love carefully. Before we love, we count the cost. We go, is this this worth it? And if it begins to, in our mind, go, this isn't worth it anymore, then we just cut bait and go, uh uh that's not not worth my love. And so we walk away, but that's not what God does. God's love is a God-sized love. It has been said that, that the value something has is shown by what someone else is willing to pay for it. One pastor calls it the eBay principle. Meaning that all of us in our homes, we have things that we think are absolutely priceless. They're antiques, they're heirlooms, and we're like, I will never sell them for a million upon millions of dollars. But one day when you die, your kids are gonna put them on eBay that, that people can bid, and they're gonna understand in that moment the things that you said, I won't sell for $10 million will be sold for six bucks. Um, because the things that we go, I'll never sell them, this has been passed down forever, is at least worth $145,000. And somebody goes, Five bucks, that's mine. And imagine that and just take that thought and then listen to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all And the point that Paul is trying to make here is that we can be sure that God is for us because this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, did not spare his own son but gave him up on the cross for us. In the words of Octavius Winslow, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The cross of Jesus is God's way of doing all that he could do for us. When he was growing up, the late author, Brendan Manning, had a best friend named Ray. The two of them did everything together. They bought their first car together. They double dated, went to school together. Even they enlisted in the army together, went to boot camp together, and fought on the front lines together. And one night they were sitting in a foxhole reminiscing Suddenly, a live grenade came into the foxhole, and Ray looked over at Brennan, smiled at him, and then threw his own body on the grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but saving Brennan's life. Years later, Brennan went to visit Ray's mother, and they sat late uh, one night talking, drinking tea, and Brennan looked at Ray's mom and said, do you think Ray loved me? which Ray's mom stood up and put her finger in his face and said, what more could Ray have done for you? What more could he have done for you than to give you his life? And Brennan said in that moment there was an epiphany, and he imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus Christ saying, I'm going through this, and I'm going through this, and I'm going through this. God, do you really love me? And Jesus looking down and saying, what more could I do for you? What more could I possibly do for you than what I've already done? The God whom we ask to give us the things that we need is the God who's already given us his son. And if God was willing to give us the costliest gift, which is his son, how shall he not freely give us everything that we need? D.L. Moody tells a story like this. He kind of summarizes the verse this way. He says, suppose you go into an upscale jewelry store and the owner meets you with the most precious most brilliant most beautiful and most expensive diamond ring in the whole store and the owner says here is yours as a gift it is yours he said would you hesitate in that moment to ask that owner hey can i have a case for this and can we wrap this up and if you ask that question you think that the owner would go no 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 a case and wrapping it up is way too much that's that's over that that's more than i could ever Give and D.L. Moody basically puts it this way the diamond is God giving you his only son. All the other things you need are mere wrapping paper. Do you need strength? Do you need wisdom? Do you need discernment? Do you need help? Do you need direction? Do you need patience? Do you need healing? Will he not also graciously give us all things? All things god is our supreme provider he will give us all that we need if he's given us his son he will give us everything else then number three god is our spiritual proponent god is our spiritual proponent i'm going to break these next two verses down kind of a little little at a time but beginning of verse 33 says this who shall bring any charge against god's elect and when paul writes these words he's Using legal language now, who will press charges against God's elect? And let me ask you a question. Think about this. If you are a child of God in this room, who is it that charges you with mistakes and the sins that you've committed? Who is it? It's not God. Let me give you three people who it is. It's Satan, it's others, and it's yourself and myself. We are quick. I've heard people, and I'm going to get a little passionate here and just, just... Endure it for a little bit. I've heard people say, I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. And I just want to say it. I, I say it a lot nicer and I'm going to say it to you, but I, I want to say this. Get over yourself. If God, the supreme holy being of the universe, can forgive you, then who in the heck do you think you are? You know, what, what you've done, you've taken on this identity that, oh, it's, everything's against me and poor me and poor me, and I could never do it. Get over yourself. Stop living and centering your life around you. Understand that God has forgiven you. Forgive yourself and get this. Move on. Move on. Do the things. Could I promise you this? When you stand before God and God, you say, well, God, you just don't know how bad I had it. He's not going to say, oh, poor little baby. Come on up here. You're. I didn't know. You're right. No, that's not the picture. Brothers and sisters, if God has forgiven us, we can forgive ourselves. And even if other people if other people remember our sins, we can say, yes, that's right, that's who I used to be, but that's not who I am anymore. And then Satan, he comes at us. The Bible tells us he's an accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12.10 says he accuses us before God day and night. He doesn't stop accusing us. Not just before God, he accuses us ourselves. We hear his voice in our minds a lot. And here's what I know about Satan's accusations. Normally, he doesn't get my part wrong. So when Satan accuses me of wrong, I've done it. Like, I don't, it's not me going, I didn't do that. No, I, he's, he's nailing it. What he gets wrong is God's response to my failure. Because what Satan begins to say is, man, God, come on. You're wearing God thin. All you ever do is mess up. All you ever do is bring failure that's all you ever do. God's getting sick and tired of forgiving you. And we, we hear those things in, in our minds. And if we're not careful, we just stay away. We stay away from the God who said, come to me. Bring your sin to me. If you confess, I'll forgive you. And we stay away from that. When all the while we need to bring those things. Think about this. Before we sin, Satan tempts us. And after we sin, he taunts us. It's what he does. He's very, very good at it. But then Paul says this, it's God who justifies. Did you know that your identity is established by who the most important person in your life or what the most important person in your life thinks about you? If it's you or if it's someone else whose opinion you live for, you're going to always struggle with guilt. You're going to always struggle with disapproval. You're going to always struggle with doubts no matter what God says about you. But what we must do is we must reestablish God as the most important person in our lives, and we must believe what he says about us. And then not only just what he says about us, we must believe what he says about himself. I think of the words of John Newton, the writer of the powerful hymn, Amazing Grace. When he reached the end of his life, he said this, My memory fades, and I've forgotten a lot of things. But there are two things that I remember greatly. Number one, I'm a great sinner. Number two, Jesus is a great Savior. He's a great Savior. Listen, we need to understand who he is. He's a great Savior. And then Paul says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So according to Romans 8, not only is the Holy Spirit within us interceding to God for us, but Jesus at the right hand of God is interceding for us for us he's praying for us Hebrews 7 says Jesus lives to pray for us he lives to do that he lives to pray for you and for me and there are listen there are a lot of bad things that people could say about us many of them are probably true if if I were to let my sister if I were just to give her just a a moment say Kelly I want you to come up here and begin to confess my sins now, I probably would say in that moment, she would never have moved faster than she moved in that moment to get up here. And she could probably spend the next few services telling you all about. She's probably been taking notes for years of all that. She's like, finally, somebody asked me. And she would begin to tell all the things that I've done. And most of them, probably all of them, would be right. I mean, the, and I could sit here and I could say, oh, I can't believe she would do that. But you know what? I'm worse than that. There's things that she would mention that, or things that she that I did that she wouldn't mention. I'm worse than that. But here's the deal: when accusations are brought, brought up against us, we don't need to fear those charges as Christians because those charges are silenced by the upraised, nail, or nail-pierced hands of the one who intercedes for us. If you as a child of God are going to be condemned, you will be condemned over the dead and resurrected body of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of what we have in our spiritual proponent. He knows us. He loves us. And he has forgiven us. And he continues to forgive us where we continue to miss the mark. He's our spiritual proponent. And then lastly, don't miss this. God is our sustaining preserver. He's our sustaining preserver. The central question of the Christian faith is this. Is there anything Or is there anyone that will keep God from loving me? And Scripture confirms that, in a weird way, think about this. Scripture confirms that God's love sticks to us like a post-it note made with heavenly glue. God's love sticks to us like divine bubble gum that's predestined to be stuck in our hair. God's love sticks to us like a Jesus tattoo on our arm that was um, put in there by Holy Spirit ink. It's not going anywhere anywhere. That's how much God loves us. God's love is constant, unchanging, immovable, and faithful. Nothing will separate us from that. And if you're taking notes, write this down. God has promised to love out of the way all the obstacles that you and I have put in the way. God has promised to love out of the way all the obstacles that you and I have put in the way. Did you know that your life is filled with about a million obstacles to God loving you? A million reasons why others wouldn't love you. And yet God knows all of them. He removes all of them and he loves you. He loves you. And look at verse 37 with me. It's not on the screen, but it says this. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can you be more than a conqueror? Now, here's what I know. A conqueror is one who celebrates after the victory. More than a conqueror is one who celebrates before the battle. So even before the battle, one who's more than a conqueror says, listen, I'm going to go through this battle. I might get dinged up. I might, get I might even get killed. But I win. I win. And we celebrate even before the battle. Here's another way to look at it. Conquests have casualties, we know that anybody who fights in a, a war has to understand that there is cost, not just financial cost, but blood. Blood will be shed, and not just soldiers that are killed, but sometimes civilians are killed. If you think back to the, the most famous battle in World War II at Omaha Beach in Normandy, D-Day, I believe I, believe I read 2,400 U.S. troops around there were, were killed that day. 2,400. But through their death came victory. Yet the question that has come forth from that and every other war is, is it worth it? Is it worth the cost of of life? And the reality for that question is absolutely yes, it was worth it. If you think about what wouldn't or what would have happened had that not happened, Hitler would have steamrolled the world. So... Welcome to Germany. No, no Fourth of July here. What would it have looked like? To be gone forever. But think about, it. keep that in mind, and then let's face it. You and I, we haven't conquered anything. Let me tell you what you haven't done. You haven't defeated sin. You haven't defeated hell. You haven't defeated the grave. You haven't defeated guilt and shame. But Jesus did. And so what we do, we piggyback on the victory that he's already made. And so Jesus is the conqueror, and then he looks at us and says, because I love you and because you receive my love, you're more than a conqueror. It's mind-blowing to think about what we have, the beneficiaries of what we have, which leads Paul to then say in verses 38 and 39, just finish with me here. Don't miss these last two verses. Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does God love us like that? Why would God treat unholy rebels in such a gracious way? And the only answer is this, because he loves us because he loves you. do you know, in fact, that there is more love of God? There's more love in God than there is sin in you. There's more love in God than there's sin in all of us, which that means there's a lot of love because there's a lot of sin in us. There's more love in God than there is sin in us. And the love of God is, is, is at its highest, its deepest, greatest, and most glorious when we understand at the sense of All the wrong and all the pain that we have done, yet he loves us still. God's love is stronger than our flesh. It's greater than our suffering. It's more eternal than death. It's more powerful even than our sin. What amazing love has been shown to us. Yet the question that I want to lay before you this morning is this. Do you trust the love of God? And are you experiencing the love of God? There was once a little girl who wanted more than anything else to have a pearl necklace. She saw one at the store, and they were fake, but she raised and and saved her allowance money and finally bought this necklace of fake pearls. She would never take them off. She wore them everywhere with her. She was known as the girl with the the pearl necklace. And one night, her dad came to the room to tuck her to bed, put her to bed, and he said, Honey... Do you know that Daddy loves you? She said, yes, Daddy, I know that you love me. And he said, do you love your Daddy? She said, yes, Daddy, you know I love you. And he said, give me the necklace. She grabbed that necklace and held it on and said, no, nope, not going to do it. She offered him some Barbie that she doesn't play with anymore. You can have that one, Dad. And, of course, he smiled, kissed her on the head, said goodnight, and left. Well, every night same thing do you know that daddy loves you do you love your daddy give me the necklace same response finally one night the father walks in the daughter says daddy I know what you're going to ask and you don't have to and the father noticed that there was no necklace around her neck and instead her lips began to quiver and her hand was holding something began to shake Dad put his hand out, and she said, Daddy, you know I love you. She dropped that necklace. As the dad received that necklace from the other hand, he pulled out a velvet bag that contained within it real pearls. And the beautiful thing is that father all along was trying to get this little girl to trade in a trinket for a treasure. Brothers and sisters, how much do we spend our lives holding on to trinkets, when God has something that's of eternal value that he wants to give us? How often are we missing out on God's love because we are holding on to the things of this world and we don't want to let go, and God is saying, do you love me? And we're going, yes God, you know I love you, when we're not letting go of those things, so we're really not loving him. And God is saying, but I still want to give you what I've got, let go. Just let go, let it go. And if we're not careful, brothers and sisters, we'll live our whole lives With clenched fist, never letting go of that which is keeping us. And here's the deal. God will never stop loving us. So hear that. God will never stop loving you. But it's possible for us to put ourselves in a place where we are not experiencing his love. If you treasure sin more than you treasure him, you're not experiencing his love. If you're holding on to everything else and refusing to let go for him, you're not experiencing his love. And when you're not experiencing his love, let me tell you what, you won't trust his love. And when you don't trust his love, you won't follow him where he wants to take you. And when you don't follow him where he wants to take you, you miss what he has for you. Brothers and sisters, do you trust his love? Do you trust his love for you? If he gave you the most precious gift of all, his son, can we not trust him with everything else? Do you trust his love and are you experiencing his love? I'm gonna ask you to stand, and we're gonna call the praise team forward in order to a time of invitation and consecration. And I just want to ask you one more time: Do you, right now, in this moment, are you trusting the love of God for you? Are you trusting His love? Are you experiencing His love? Is there anything that God right now is telling you? Give it to me. Give it to me. And you're saying. No, it's it's become a part of my identity. God is still saying, but I want it so that I can become your identity. Give it to him. Let's pray. Father, we approach your throne of grace in this moment, thanking you, God, for the word that we just heard and read and unpacked. God, the beauty of you, our God, who is for us. And God, if you are for us, who or what can be against us? Nothing. No one. Not not anything or anyone. And God, if you've given us your son, you'll give us everything that we need. But Lord, we need to trust your love. We need to let go of the things that we are holding on to that define us. The holding on to that that we think we must have. For the sake of God trusting that you will give us exactly what we we need. I pray for anyone here today, Lord, who is never trusted you as their Savior and Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be a day of turning to you, turning from sin, trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But also, God, pray for brothers and sisters all across this room and those watching online. God, help us. Help us to trust your love. understanding, God, that if we call into question your love, the declaration over us is what more could you have done for us? We'll just work, God, finish. Finish this time. In Jesus' name.